because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Sitting in for Alex Epstein this week, I'm Dom Watkins, Director of Education at the Center for Industrial Progress, and with me is our Head of Research, Stefan Henna. Stefan, welcome to Power Hour. Hey, Dom. And uh, why don't you kick things off this week? What's your first story? Yeah, so uh, presidential candidate and senator uh, and self-proclaimed democratic socialist uh, Bernie Sanders uh, has revealed his climate and energy uh, plan called the Green New Deal, uh, which is a common theme, of course, among Democrats uh, this election cycle. And as expected, it's a pretty uh, progressive, eco-left, utopian plan of which we had several, but this is very ambitious. So he starts up out with a, with a lot of uh, rhetoric about the uh, you know, greedy billionaires and the uh, criminal fossil fuel industry um, and uh, how he wants to change and overhaul the entire system. And it, as a justification, he calls uh, this the climate issue a climate emergency and citing the recent Greenland surface melt and the Amazon fires, interestingly, both of which didn't have much to do with climate change overall. But this is a kind of uh, event that he uses as a hook for his uh, urgent policy. And so over the next 11 years uh, in this plan, Uh, Allegedly, the science tells us that we need to act quickly and reduce our CO2 emissions um, to prevent the climate catastrophe. And uh, this, of course, is in the unchallenged radical rhetoric that is now standard policy, at least on the democratic side of things. Um, And so some of the goals in the plan are 100% renewable energy, of course, for electricity and transport, no later than 2030, which is quite ambitious, if not impossible, um, even with a good policy, but uh, I don't think this one will come close to that. Uh, And in addition, of course, because this is Bernie Sanders, which this will be provided by a state-owned energy utility. So in an interview with MSNBC, uh, Senator Sanders also uh, mentioned the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was established in the 1930s and is a federally owned utility and it also provides some other services in Tennessee Um, and this is for him this is a raw model of how we should run the entire energy system for electric power and uh, transportation Uh, and another goal is zero carbon emissions uh, on net by 2050 at the latest Uh, he wants to create 20 million new jobs uh, in all kinds of venues with this, you know, this is a standard narrative about the alleged green uh, jobs that will uh, come up when just by from switching from the traditional, you know, uh, fossil fuels, nuclear and so on, just to uh, solar, wind and in his case, uh, especially geothermal as well. Overall, 16.3 trillion um, investments, as it's called, um, in sort of a World War II style effort in mobilization of the national economy over the next 11 years, um, then declaring formally uh, climate change as a national emergency uh, and, and internationally spending money on a climate fund and rejoining the Paris Agreement. 
Now, listeners to Power Hour, of course, know that uh, spending some 200 billion, something like that, uh, on, a, on a climate fund internationally and rejoining the Paris Agreement will not do anything because most of the future emissions uh, will come from developing countries, in particularly in Africa and Asia, and they are not committed to anything in, in the Paris Accords as of now. Um, so here are two quotes from the, from the uh, climate plan by Bernie Sanders. The first quote is, to get our goal of 100% sustainable energy, we will not rely on any false solutions like nuclear, geoengineering, carbon capture and sequestration, or trash incinerators. So notably, nuclear, the one big technology that could help with this goal, uh, is excluded by Bernie Sanders. And then another quote uh, from the climate, uh, from the Green New Deal by Bernie Sanders. We will invest in nationwide electric vehicle charging infrastructure to increase access to these resources for all, just as we built an interstate highway system in the 1950s and 1960s. So this is where this is going. Transportation, of course, will be electrified. Battery electric vehicles will be in this state-run effort, uh, be the dominating uh, um, technology for transport. And uh, yeah, it's... Uh, Let's just say it's at least in all of magnitude more difficult than building an highway, interstate highway system. Um, and in 11 years, it's technically impossible. Um, but then if you think this is, this is like a very, well, um, ambitious is, is an understatement. This is an impossible plan. Now it gets even better because according to the Green New Deal plan, this plan will pay for itself. And here are a couple of points that are noted down uh, how this is going to happen. So by, by making the fossil fuel industry pay, generating profits from the state utility, reducing military spending for oil. So allegedly there's a lot of uh, spending from the military just to secure our energy and oil interests. Um, then collecting taxes from the 20 million new jobs and saving social safety programs because of less unemployment, because these 20 million additional jobs will end unemployment for all. And then making the wealthy and large corporations pay their fair share, which is, you know, in every program of, by Bernie Sanders, I think. Um, so uh, now this is, to me, this is a lot of economic acrobatics here. Because, uh, so Bernie Sanders wants to, a bankrupt the fossil fuel industry and although large corporations apparently and then taxing them as well to pay for for the new system and destroying all the profits in the current um, energy system and then but just generate the same type of profits in a state utility so this this is very interesting because um, you might want to look at places like Venezuela to see what happens when you just try to nationalize the oil industry alone. And this is this is far more ambitious. Is is trying to just within about a decade uh, just overhaul the entire energy system, which you know grew in America over many decades since World War Two. This is this is very very uh, ambitious and and. So there's a lot of, to my understanding, there's a lot of double counting in this. Just, you know, we'll make the fossil fuel industry pay while it's bankrupt. This is 
probably not going to happen because you know that if you if you don't allow the fossil fuel industry to generate any profits how are you going to tax them for your ambitious 16.3 trillion dollar program right um and of course uh getting more revenue from the jobs that the government will provide in the state utility and other investments. This seems like a perpetual mobile in, in economics, you know, you just get a state or, or government program and then you tax the people to finance it. The same people that work in the government program. That doesn't seem like a good start. So if, if that was possible, the Soviet Union, you know, no dominate the, the planet probably. And everyone in the process, of course, will save money. Um, so you will save on electricity bills because Bernie Sanders uh, knows a cheaper way to generate electric power uh, compared to uh, the greedy uh, capitalists, of course. And it's not so that there's a lengthy there, there are lengthy passages of this that I haven't read entirely, but it. All of these programs make no sense because they run apparently on the assumption that somehow a government program or a government monopoly in the marketplace will somehow find a way to make things differently uh, than it is now and at the same time much cheaper and more efficiently. And this, this doesn't, doesn't really fly for me. But of course, you have to give the Green New Deal uh, plan this much. It actually has a better chance of massively reducing American CO2 emissions than other plants because this would actually wreck the economy for good. And, you know, um, yeah, if you get much poorer, of course, you have a, have a lower carbon footprint, a lower footprint than anything else. So this is really, this has the potential to reduce the um, American per capita CO2 footprint significantly simply by you know, making Americans poor. And, and that's that's really all that it boils down to. Yeah, I mean, there's there's only one sense in which this is truly ambitious because, like, even, at, you know, if you take America's uh, CO2 down to virtually zero because there's virtually zero economic activity, like, that still does not change the trajectory of the world. And so the sense in which this is ambitious is solely in that it's ambitious in terms of how much power Sanders wants to take on his part. And I do think that there's a temptation to like not take something like this seriously, but I think it should be taken very seriously. Like this is a serious plan put forward by somebody who has a non-trivial chance of becoming president of the United States. And part of taking it seriously means recognizing that the insane price tag will not actually be an impediment if people accept that this is a moral action. And even more than that, I think, like, if you see a totalitarian plan that wants total government control over the economy and your reaction is, well, the price is too high, like, you've missed the boat. Like, this is literally dictatorial and the costs aren't, you know, some, oh, this is a $16 trillion plan that could potentially pay for itself or that would involve a lot of debt. No, the cost is having a civilized, advanced economy, to say nothing of a even semi-free economy. My first story, I want to 
direct people's attention to a Wall Street Journal column that came out today. I guess officially it came out uh, yesterday on August 26th, uh, so I guess two days ago for those of you who are listening, uh, by William McGurn that's really uh, celebrating the life of David Koch. Koch, of course, recently passed away. He was the co-owner of Koch Industries and somebody who, along with his brother Charles Koch, was viciously and relentlessly attacked by the left. And there's two things notable about McGurn's column. The first is that although it talks about Koch's philanthropy, which a lot of the pieces defending Koch, who was, I mean, even after his death, attacked really viciously by people like Bill Maher, um, it talks about that, but it's focused mostly in the virtue of his business activities, of the virtues of profiting by producing the fossil fuels that we need in order to flourish. And this leads to the second thing that's really notable about the column, which is that it has two kind of context-setting quotes from Alex. So let me just quote Alex's quotes, because I think they really get to the heart of our position, which is, when we hear that David Koch was a profit-seeking oil refiner, we should feel not contempt and blame, but admiration and gratitude. And then he mentions this, says Alex Epstein, founder of the Center for Industrial Progress and author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And then he continues, while oil refining, one of the key businesses of Koch Industries is treated as shameful. It is one of the world's most life-giving businesses. Every product and service we use is better and cheaper because of oil power. From the food we eat to the vaccination, or, I'm sorry, to the vacations we take to all of the amazing products we buy on Amazon, end quote. And uh, this didn't make it into the column, but one of the points I, Alex often makes that I think really deserves to be stressed when thinking about the legacy of David Koch is the his role in promoting freedom and his role in promoting freedom for decades, often at real personal risk. So, I mean, he, you know, for, for decades was on the forefront of promoting individual rights and capitalism and was attacked with real vitriol by everybody, including President Obama. And he, along with his brother Charles, received like countless numbers of death threats as a result. And I mean, it didn't lead them to shut up at all. Like they continued going ahead with that and like they didn't have to, like they, uh, you know, as people who were incredibly successful and incredibly rich, they did not have to get involved in, to, in politics. They could have just, you know, lived in the lap of luxury and bought a bunch of yachts and like, you know, that's fine if you're going to do that, but they really believed in freedom and were willing to, plow ahead trying to promote it as best they could in the face of threats and sphere and, and smears. And so this is, this is actually a quote from Alex that didn't make it into the piece, but I thought just really summed this point up eloquently. He says, thus, not only did David Koch live a life of production himself, he courageously promoted a world where everyone else would have a greater chance to produce and profit in their own lives. And you know, we were talking about Bernie Sanders and his plan, and it's a worthwhile contrast with David Koch, I think. So Sanders recently tweeted, fossil fuel executives should be criminally prosecuted for the destruction they have knowingly caused. 
Now, I'm not sure what Law Sanders thinks he's going to prosecute them under, since it's not a crime to produce fossil fuels and the Constitution forbids ex post facto law. But setting that aside, like, you know, unlike David Koch, Sanders has produced exactly nothing his whole life. Like, I guess one best-selling book. But on net, like, he has created no economic value. And unlike Koch, he hasn't fought for freedom but against it. I mean, if you want to talk about destruction, nothing has caused more destruction in human history than socialism in all of its various guises. And, like, Sanders' view is, like, his whole mission in life is to bring that to the United States. So if you're asking, like, who's done more for human flourishing, it's self-evident. But then if you ask a different question, well, who does our, cons- who does our culture consider moral? Like, if you think of the treatment of the Koch brothers and the fact that even, you know, a handful of people are defending them, but most people are either indifferent or have a negative view. And... I think like what we have is a really anti-human, anti-business prejudice in the culture where Sanders gets to be idealistic because he advocates throwing people like Coke into jail for lawful productive activities. And then people celebrate Coke's death because he produced the energy and fought for the freedom that people need to live. So, I mean, I regard this as a real indictment on us and, you know, we need more people like Coke and more people like the people who are defending Coke and his legacy. Stefan, any thoughts? Yeah, so I, I was watching um, on social media all these people talking about how, you know, the left has cheered uh, the death of David Coke and um, uh, how this is uh, like a really bad sign on, on their character. But you have to to see how this what kind of warped reality the left was constantly watching so the consumers of you know mainstream media or bernie sanders rhetoric or many political actors on the left they have created this in their narrative this monster of the coke brothers which are allegedly um these evil intentional planet destroyers and of course like following that a lot of people were are happy about the death of a human like this, right? So this is like, you know, they, they almost most made it like a World War II villain. Like when when Hitler dies, obviously that's a that's a good day, right? And uh, it's I think it's less an indictment of the of the people who consume this than of those who create this this evil narrative. It's not like, oh, this is an opponent who has a different opinion and spends his own money on on certain values that he thinks is, is really, really great thing, like, you know, fossil fuels who which bring life to humanity and make us more productive. It's uh, the narrative was, no, this is an evil person who knows uh, that he's destroying the planet, that he's killing us all long term, and he doesn't care, and he he wants everyone to die in the future. This was a narrative, and this sounds absurd to to you and me, Don. But uh, I I think there's it's really dangerous what kind of narratives are created in the. Well, maybe, yeah, it's it's a mainstream. It's maybe it's more of an echo chamber on the left, but it's almost a mainstream. So this is this is really. It shows how, how bad this can go. 
Well, I think what happens is you have a certain kind of model of human behavior. And if you have a certain model that says, well, there's kind of people who are just driven by greed and then they try to rationalize that or protect that by, uh, you know, a dishonestly promoted anti-government free market ideology, well, then you can just kind of fill in the blank like that. All right, this person fits that template. But if you have any any real understanding of kind of what the value of freedom and the value of productive achievement and like the kind of principled courage it takes for a person to champion freedom, which is incredibly unpopular view today, uh, like there's it, it it's not even remotely plausible. So I think a lot of it has to do with just this larger view of how we view businessmen as these kind of cartoon villains. And therefore, it's very plausible that, yeah, they're just trying to manipulate and control us all. Stefan, what's your next story? Uh, So CNN will host a climate-focused debate, or they call it a forum, um, on September 4th. And this comes after the Democratic uh, National Convention has just voted down an activist um, proposal to allow candidates to debate each other on a single issue uh, on stage, which currently seems to be banned by the Democratic National Convention. But um, I don't know how exactly that plays into it, because I don't think CNN will just um, uninvite everyone and just uh, let this crash. So I, I don't think the DNC has any any way to enforce a kind of ban on single issue things. So obviously this climate issue has been a big thing on the on the Democratic side for the presidential candidates. And interestingly, just recently, Jay Inslee, who has been very low in the polls all the time, but who also has focused almost solely on the uh, climate issue and energy policy issue, uh, has dropped out of the race. So now, I find the question interesting. Why is it that there's there's such low voices on the Democratic side, on the activist side, also with the candidates uh, about radical climate policies? We've talked about Bernie Sanders' plan today, but the others are also quite radical with 100% renewable goals, you know, carbon neutrality until 2050 and billions and, or trillions and trillions and I'm keeping to confuse that trillions and trillions of dollars in quote unquote government investments. And uh, so obviously the candidates believe that this is a winning issue, um, at least on the Democratic side. So why does the Democratic National Convention say, oh, we we don't want that uh, to be an issue or, or we don't want a big focus on that during the debates? Uh, and I believe this is a two-edged sword. So on one hand, the most radical climate rhetoric might win a majority inside the Democratic camp, or maybe it will just bring in enough votes to make someone prevail on the side of the Democrats. But then if you think long-term, will this really resonate with the American public at large? Because if you if you're... Um, if you win the nomination of the Democratic Party, but then you have to face Trump in the main election, obviously a lot of swing voters and a lot of uh, people in the general public that are not um, 
either not focused on this particular issue or they believe this is too much of a radical agenda, um, will have difficulties voting for someone who says, well, we'll just destroy fossil fuels, especially in the wake of the uh, shale revolution, which has such a great economic impact on the entire American economy. This is not just, oh, we are, we are now producing our own gasoline. It's, it's really like this is billions and billions of dollars of business and it has turned America from an oil importer into an oil exporter and it also has a lot of uh, secondary impact in your manufacturing business and, and other parts of the economy, of course. And a lot of people will probably not be as enthusiastic as something like the Sunrise Movement, which is a, is a eco-left um, anti-fossil fuel youth movement. That's how I would describe it. And they were furious about, about this decision by the DNC to not include this, uh, this uh, climate debate issue in their agenda. But yeah, I, I think the, the DNC actually fears losing against Trump on, by default because all of these plans um, are so radical. So they, the Democratic presidential candidates want to one-up one another by more and more radical plans, shorter timeframes, greater trillions in, in government overhaul, more control of the economy and so on. And this will probably not really um, really be good in the in the main election, in the in the actual presidential election, once these candidates have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with uh, Trump. And uh, yeah, I, I think this is a two-edged sword and um, I think it's quite dangerous, quite a dangerous game by many of the presidential candidates on the Democratic side. Yeah, I think it's a really revealing dynamic that there's absolutely no penalty for how radical or expensive any of these plans are. Like the whole battle is just trying to gain the status as the person, you know, who's most ambitious and who most rapidly wants to get rid of fossil fuels or who wants to get rid of uh, everything except for solar and wind and how there's absolutely like no credit that would give it like, even if you had somebody who had a plan that was far beyond, let's say what Barack Obama had, but they said, look, we have to seriously consider costs and benefits and like they would get nowhere that 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 would have absolutely no political benefit to them at this stage in the nomination process and i think it what it is it's revealing of the nature of the moral ideal of you know what we'll call the the 100 that they've embraced that is if the ideal like if if you have everybody surrounding an ideal of non-impact then if you have if everybody's agreed on that well then, yeah, you want to be the person most aligned with non-impact. And if you start bringing in pro-human considerations like cost and prosperity and jobs, then it, as limitations, it just shows that you are not really committed to our ideal of non-impact. Like you are a compromiser. And so it's they've sort of built a, a trap for themselves precisely because this only works if everybody's really, really devoted to the ideal. Whereas if most people, most Americans are in one way or another kind of eclectic, 
that is they're trying to mix well sometimes we'll be non-impact but hey we got to have a job and we need economic growth and you know if you have somebody kind of racing off uh with you know climate at any price that is highly likely i think as you suggested to be very alienated for them but the point is that they that they can't exercise that break on themselves just given the dynamics of arguing to 100 in you know what amounts to a subculture my next story uh goes to a topic that we've touched on but really i think deserves some focus and that is the subject of flight so i mean if you think about what are the most amazing inventions in human history, you'd have to have flight right up there. And if you think about inventions that have had a meaningful impact on human flourishing, like nothing has so improved our ability to travel affordably and efficiently uh, and really brought the, brought the globe into you know, a, a single unit economically and otherwise as, as flight. And then now we're getting a trend that is uh, particularly big in Europe, apparently, but uh, is coming to our shores, uh, no doubt by virtue of people flying over here, uh, flight shaming. And so the New York Times travel columnist, who's a person you would think, well, if anybody's for flight, it would have to be a travel columnist. This guy, Seth Kugel he basically penned a lamentation about the damage he's doing to the environment by traveling and the damage we're all doing and how to wrestle with this horrible guilt. And he describes how, you know, until 2016, he just would fly, never gave it any thought. And then he had this great awakening and part of it came from his alarming realization that, oh my gosh, more and more people are going to be enjoying traveling over the coming decades. And so it's, well, that can't be good. Uh, and so he has, you know, what, what should be our advice in a world where flying is immoral because of its impact on the environment? And he, he says, well, look, you don't have to avoid co- flying completely. First of all, he says that rather than feel guilty, what you should really be doing is working to have government policies address climate. And he's not clear on what those policies would be in the realm of air travel, Uh, but he does say what you should be doing personally is you should cut back on your overall travel mileage and quote, do you really need to take that many trips a year? There are platitudes aplenty about travel. It inspires, it educates, it reduces bigotry, but not all trips meet those standards. Consider an educational exchange program in Vietnam compared to a week resort in the Maldives or Maldives, I'm sorry, I, I'm not well-traveled enough or sophisticated enough to know what that location is. Um, I mean, pause on that for a second. Like, oh, so basically you're allowed to travel if it's for some, like, do-good or project, but if it's for your own personal pleasure, like if it's you actually want to relax and have real enjoyment in your life, no, that does not pass the test. And then he goes on to give a bunch of advice for how to travel when you must. Uh, You know, it's things like avoid airplanes and resort to buses, which as bad as air travel has become today, like a bus is pretty much like the ultimate nightmare travel situation, I think. Um, 
again, there's just no concern for comfort. Like that does not even make it into the, into the equation. And he gives a bunch of other ideas and he concludes, most of this will make travel more expensive and that may mean traveling even less. Think of it as a progressive tax paid by those lucky enough to travel for damaging the world those who can't travel must live in. It is a small price to pay and maybe it will make you feel a little less shame. I mean, what that makes me feel is complete disgust. I mean, like, notice it's not, hey, we should we should strive for a world where everybody can travel. I mean, he began his whole opposition by lamenting the fact that more and more of these people are going to be traveling in the future. That is more and more people who couldn't afford to travel in the past are going to be able to do it. And he sees that as a bad thing. And now we're supposed to pay penance, uh, not by trying to make those people richer and able to travel, but just by denying ourselves pleasure. And, a big part of the context here is you think, oh my gosh, well, flying is, if we are going to rob ourselves of all the benefits of flying, unless it's, you know, for some kind of politically correct cause, um, this better have a big impact on saving the planet, right? Like, you know, surely this should be uh, helping the cause in some significant way. But in fact, flying is really about 2% of global emissions and you know some anti-flying activists have tried to argue that it's as high as five percent but basically it's if you were concerned about climate you'd say like this is not a big factor for something where there's no real substitute but again like it's not concerned for climate it's concerned for minimizing human impact and minimizing human happiness and like i mean the way i think about it is you know, we live in a world of achievement. And what the green movement agenda is in every case is just to tear down achievement. So we have the fossil fuel industry that's achieved reliable, affordable energy for billions of people. And then the green movement, their achievement is to get, say, let's get rid of it. And then you have like farmers and, and, and people who've created GMOs, who've managed to have affordable, delicious food for billions, and their solution is get rid of it. And then you have affordable, efficient transportation that can bring you across the globe in a matter of hours. And it's not, wow, that's amazing, and let's make it better. It's let's stop using it, feel guilty for it, and ultimately get rid of it. And this is why I think it's just so important that we appreciate achievement and not take it for granted. Um, it kind of reminds me of the, there was recently a G7 meeting uh, where there, which I think we'll talk about one of the outcomes of that, which is a pledge of, I think, $20 million for the Amazon uh, forest fires. But uh, Trump, the Trump administration apparently was, complaining about uh, things like climate being on the agenda and, you know, dismiss them as niche issues, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but if you're thinking about human flourishing, it's true. Like the core issue of human flourishing is that we need productive achievement and we need it for many reasons, but one of them is that that's what gives us a livable climate. And that's precisely where our focus should be. And yet, that is all taken for granted. Instead, our focus is on what can we ban? And then if we can't ban it, what can we feel guilty for, for doing in our own lives? Stefan 
any thoughts? Yeah, so I I think there's a sort of indirect climate connection there in, you know, um, because I, I recently saw an argument that for many flights, at least on the economy level, the air travel is already more fuel efficient than driving by car. So from a, from a minimizing the resource footprint, flying in some cases is better than driving or at least everyone individually driving, I think. And, and, but this, this kind of argument totally misses the point, right? Because as you said, they don't want you to get as efficiently as possible from A to B. They want you to stop before B. They want you to travel less, right? And so what it ultimately always boils down to is, yeah, just you shouldn't travel. You should minimize your footprint entirely. And uh, so any kind of argument about, yeah, but air travel isn't actually that that harmful or not that relevant or something, it's they want at every level humans to do less, to achieve less and to be, you know, less lively. That's ultimately the, the green ideal. It's, you can't avoid that. And, and uh, like ultimately every narrative that says, oh, we'll just do the same with smarter technology or we will even like in the Bernie Sanders plan that we discussed earlier, they say, you're going to save money. No, you shouldn't save money. If you want minimum climate impact or minimum any impact, everything needs to be more expensive and you need to be be less able to afford anything, right? So the ultimate goal is to do less. It's not like, oh, do it, do it in a better way. All right, Stefan, what's your next story? So recently... Uh, Fires in the Amazon area um, have been in the headlines and uh, the Amazon basin, of course, spans over uh, several South American countries, including Brazil, Peru, Colombia and some others. And um, so this is portrayed as a global crisis that needs to be dealt with. And this um, event now is particularly significant and uh, horrible. Uh, and even French Macron, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, at the G7 um, event, which is not ongoing anymore, it, it ended on Monday, uh, tweeted um, from there the following quote Our house is burning, literally, the Amazon rainforest, the lungs which produces 20% of our planet's oxygen, is on fire. It is an international crisis. Members of the G7 summit, let's discuss the emergency first order in two days. And uh, of course, as you already mentioned, uh, they pledged uh, some significant amount of money to help with that. I, I think there was some dispute between uh, leaders in South America and the G7 leaders, uh, whether they actually want that money. Um, but the narrative is clear, and this has been emphasized by many celebrities, often with um, some very outdated uh, imagery from from earlier years uh, about forest in, in South America, forest fires in South America, and so this is a crisis of global significance, and much of the Amazon rainforest is allegedly being destroyed, and we depend on this, and it, we will be uh, significantly impacted by this, uh, you know. President Macron said uh, 20% of the planet's oxygen. I think this is a totally made up number. This is 
to his credit, this is uh, this number has been around long before him, or, or long before he mentioned it. But uh, it's a it's a total totally made up number. It's we're not running out of oxygen, even if the entirety of South America would be deforested, and uh, it's it's not uh, important for that. And some have have made this climate connection. You know, oh, this is this is going on. This is. Uh, spreading CO2 in the atmosphere to a significant amount and and so on. But uh, So this is a narrative and the Brazilian president uh, Bolsonaro didn't exactly help the situation when he accused uh, NGOs, green NGOs, of starting the fires after being ex- accused of enabling the deforestation and also the forest fires by relaxing environmental standards for the logging and farming industry. Uh, but that's a that's a local dispute. I don't want to get into that too much. But what 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 is actually happening there, right? That that would be the question. And the first thing I do is uh, try to find some data on this. And <clears throat> the available data this is from NASA and some other organizations that that uh, estimate the um, forest fires in in South America and in the Amazon basin specifically. And it doesn't provide much ground for alarm. So the current burned area and the emitted CO2 is about average of recent years. And when you look further back into in time, to the early compared to the early 2000s, the trajectory is actually um, downwards. The trend is down. Um, and only if you look at the less relevant number of uh, number of forest fires. Uh, you see that 2019 is, a, f- compared to recent years, relatively high number uh, of forest fires this year. And <clears throat> so, but this created this media narrative of, oh, this, this year is totally out of whack with anything. And this is a particularly large, um, large impact and, and uh, large fire area, which is, is not. Um, so according to the best data that I could find, and I think it's the only, only data available right now, um, this is not a particularly significant uh, year. These forest fires happen every year. And so if we look at the underlying causes, uh, normally these forests don't burn. So this is intentional human action that is causing these fires. And most of that is farmers actually clearing the, uh, the arable land from brush. So this happens every year. This is, this, this is nothing unusual. They just burn what has grown there over time, over, over the one year period. And this happens over and over again. And so we could ask if, if we wanted to say, okay, but there's some value to preserving um, the Amazon Basin uh, rainforest. Uh, there's some value to it, whether it's aesthetically or we believe that this is a good way to store CO2 if we are concerned about climate impacts of CO2 and the you know, forests are net sink of CO2 emissions because they, they uh, capture the CO2 from the atmosphere and, and put it into their carbon stu- structure. And if we want that, um, yeah, we, we should talk about how to do this because the underlying cause ultimately is um, South America is a relatively poor part of the of the world. You know, the farmers and the loggers there, they need to make a living. And if they were richer, if they were as rich as, as Don and I are, as, as Westerners and developed economies, they would have more options, right? And these options would include leaving the rainforest alone. But 
these are relatively poor people and they need to make, make a living and yeah, they are using the resources that are available to them, which includes agricultural land that they need to create by burning down forest, or cutting down and burning down forest area. And then, you know, keeping it uh, clear of brush and, and new trees by burning them. That's the only efficient way to do it right now. And uh, yeah, so, so if you want more options, if you want a larger part of the rainforest, uh, you shouldn't spend your money on green NGOs, which are now, you know, running advertisements on, on how to help with this. We should make it possible for South American economies to prosper. And, you know, part of this is, is political and economic freedom. And part of this, large part of this is, uh, you know, cheap, abundant and reliable energy, of course. All right. Well, that's it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me, Don Watkins, at don at industrialprogress.net. And if you have any interest by speech by Alex or anyone else from our team, we've got a lineup of great speakers at a bunch of different price points, you can email me at don at industrialprogress.net. And if you're interested in help with messaging and you have a high-stakes messaging project and you'd like to consider working with us, email me and we'll set up a short call. In the meantime, make sure that you subscribe to our newsletter at alexepsteinlist.com where you can stay up to date with all of our latest activities. And we will be back next week with more great topics. Until then, this is Don Watkins and Stefan Henna, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.